Our scripture reading today, this is going to sound familiar, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. If you would stand with me, please, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men who rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult, then cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence, With our hearts bowed, we acknowledge that you are the mighty God, the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace, and we are your people. We celebrate the birth of Christ. Thank you, Father, that we have, at this time, the benefit of hindsight. We know that there is no Calvary without the manger. We celebrate not just a baby, but a sinless life, a death, and a resurrection that purchased our salvation. Thank you, Father. We are your people. You are our God. We do ask, in accordance with your word, to provide our daily bread. We ask for healing in our bodies, healing in our hearts. We pray that we will be strong in you, strong in the places that you have called us, in our home, in our vocation, in our recreation. Father, prepare us. Prepare us even today. Open our minds, open our hearts. That as our pastor comes with the message that you've given him, that we would see Jesus. Lord, we ask for fresh insights, ask for fresh encouragement, that we would know you in a new way, in a greater way. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, IBC family. How are we doing? First of all, Lily, Lily, yes, I'm talking to you. (laughs) We're so happy for you. 
really. I, it, what a privilege and honor it is to celebrate God's saving grace in your life. And so thank you for letting us participate in that. You know, sometimes people want to make it very quiet and kind of under the radar, but you made this very glorious, and here I am, here I am and we love that. So thank you for blessing us by being obedient to what Jesus asked you to do. That was very awesome. Yeah. And by the way, thanks for the entertainment. I'm trying to which hand to grab too. So <laughs> that was awesome. Um, speaking of just incredible opportunities, not only do we get to celebrate with Lily and just what God is doing in her life, but we also got the opportunity this yesterday to bless 150 families in our community or in the kind of the, the peninsula area yesterday. And it is, it is most definitely a team effort, and so this is not uh, dependent on any like one person. No one person could put the, pull this off. However, there are some key people that are uh, really carrying the weight, like Jim and Diana Sisk and Jeff Scott and a number of others who are really, they're there all day from the, usually the first ones, except there's always a few people in line really waiting to be first come, first served. But 150 families, I think that's a record number of families in one day's time, about 600 people uh, on the peninsula were uh, not including the volunteers that were helping. So uh, we ran out of all the food. We ran out of almost all the presents. It was like, whoa, what is going on? And so, but what an incredible opportunity. So just out of curiosity, how many in here right now, you might be, some of you might be sleeping and just live streaming right now, but, uh, but how many got out of bed this morning that served in some capacity yesterday? Could you just stand to your feet for just a moment? Oh, yeah. See? There we go. Many hands make light work. Yep. So thank you so much for serving so faithfully. I know there's others uh, from middle school and high school as well that were coming. The ROTC was there. I mean, it was just, there was just all walks of life coming here to serve uh, with one in one unified fashion. So that was incredible. And of course, this time of year, this is what we, we have the opportunity to anticipate really just opening our doors to the community and blessing them in a very tangible way. And I know that probably in your household, uh, maybe some households more than others, but probably in your household there are uh, the conversation or the tone of the conversation changes, right, than the average month, right? Uh, this time of year, it's all about kind of, you know, the decorations are going up, you know. Uh, the kids are letting you know that this seems a little bare under the tree. I don't know. Um, we try to emphasize more the experience than the actual, that's the gift we want to give is more in experience than it is just stuff. Um, but uh, no doubt that's a conversation that persists in at least a number of your homes. And as I think about the, this conversation that kind of comes back every single year, uh, there's kind of, it reminded me of a... Uh, a propensity for my kids, and yes, even me. Uh, so when we give gifts for one another, it is, uh, let's just put it this way, it's very difficult to keep things a secret in our home. Uh, you know, we get the gift, and it's just like everybody's really giddy and excited to share the gift. I don't know if this applies to you or in your family in some way, shape, or form, but in our household, we get the gift, and then it's just like, I got this gift, and it weighs this much, and it's this size, and it... And it starts with this, and it ends with this, and it's like, we have all these hints to where like, we're like, no, keep it a secret, but we have a hard time keeping gifts a secret because we're just excited to give the gift. 
Uh, I mean, obviously we want to show uh, our expression of love and, and gratitude for the person that we're giving a gift to. And so keeping things a secret without giving too many subtle hints just doesn't happen in our household. I don't know what it is like in your household. But here's the thing. As much as we get excited about giving subtle hints to the gifts that we gave to one another, that is also true of our great God. You see, God the Father has given us subtle hints all along the way. In fact, through the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the gift that was wrapped in swaddling clothes even came, God has been giving us hint after hint, promise of hope after promise of hope that he is doing something. That in the midst of, uh, of sin and death and decay and destruction and war and famine and all these terrible things that happen because of the curse of sin, God is saying, I'm doing something. I got this. I'm providing this gift, and it's going to be really, really good. In fact, I can't wait to tell you about it. I, I, I'm going to give you a lot of hints. You may not quite understand it in the moment, but I'm doing something. God was eager to share his gift. Last week we learned that this gift who would be the redeemer of Israel has many names and has many titles. One one such name for this redeemer king, as we learned last week, was Wonderful Counselor. That Jesus is our Wonderful Counselor. And as we learned last week, this Jesus as our Wonderful Counselor means that Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, maybe at this very moment, whatever it is that you are currently facing, that Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, has something to say to you. Not only does he have something to say to you, but it's also reassuring to know that Jesus, more than anybody else in life or in this world, understands your situation. After all, how many of you have gone through trials and struggles of various kinds? And most of the time, people cannot understand. They may care. They may empathize as much as they can, but they cannot understand. They don't know the pain firsthand. They don't know the struggle firsthand. But Jesus says, I do. I get it. I understand you. Every detail of your struggle, I get and I care. The question for all of us, as we reflect on the fact that Jesus is our wonderful counselor, is this, are we listening? Are you and I listening to the counsel and the guidance and the advice that he so eagerly wants to give us? Are we listening to the one who knows the pain, who understands our dilemma, who can genuinely relate to our loss, to the one who who offers divine counsel so that we might navigate our circumstance, whatever it may be, in a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Spirit-empowered way? Well, this morning we learn who King Jesus is by understanding another one of his names. 
Another one of his titles. And yes, we learned last week, as I said, that Jesus is our wonderful counselor, but we also learned through the prophet Isaiah that Jesus is also mighty God. He is our wonderful counselor, but Jesus is also our mighty God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about it's, it's somewhat humorous or kind of paradoxical in, in my mind because when you think about Jesus being wonderful, our wonderful counselor and mighty God, you think of mighty God as this like mountain, you know, mighty warrior, right? A Goliath type figure, someone who's strong, someone who's ready to defeat anything. Like nobody could stand in his or her way kind of thing. And yet Jesus is mighty God and he's presented in the form of a baby. I don't need to convince you moms in here what the implications of that means, right? A baby. A baby who is completely helpless and vulnerable at that stage of life. I mean, a baby needs everything done for them. They, they need to be fed. They need to be clothed. They need to be wiped. They need to be protected. I mean, a baby is completely dependent upon the attentive care of another person. And yet... That is God's strategy to present a mighty warrior, a mighty God. You might ask the question as I kind of do in a sense, I step back and go, man, how, how could this be a good idea? How can this be God's plan to save the human race from the curse of sin and death? How can this be an effective strategy to free his own people, Israel, from their oppressors? And then when you survey how God works throughout the pages of Scripture, we realize or are reminded once again, this is what's so amazing in the way that God works. You see, throughout the pages of Scripture, we observe over and over again that God's ways are not our ways. You see how God used, we see how God used the most unlikely means to overcome the most incredible obstacles. For example, you look at how when, when Israel crosses the Jordan River and they're supposed to, the first city they have to defeat going into the promised land is the city of Jericho, had a reputation that long preceded Israel. Everybody knew the walls of Jericho, Jericho were impenetrable. They, there's nothing anybody could ever do. And God says, I got an idea. Here's my strategy. You're going to go around, march around it once a day. And on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times, and you're going to basically sing and have a worship service, and everything's going to implode. Not the most effective war strategy that anybody came up with, yet that is the means by which God had an incredible victory. Or you think about how King David was anointed, right? Samuel, the prophet, the one who has this intimate relationship with God, he goes to, as in obedience, goes to uh, to King David, his, basically his father, Jesse, and goes to all those who are all the sons are like, oh, surely this is the son. Oh, surely this has got to be the king. Oh, surely this has got to be the king. God says, nope, 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 nope. Do you have any other sons? And well, there's David out in the field, you know, tending sheep right now. Bring him, I guess. And God says, that's the one. That's the one I have chosen. Because as Samuel is even reminded of by God himself, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. 
Or think about God's deliverance of Israel from the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Menuhites in Second uh, Chronicles 20, right? We have King Jehoshaphat. They're, they're in the city of Jerusalem. They're surrounded by enemy oppressors. And they're, they're in a place where, like, we have no idea what to do right now. They are discouraged. They are fearful. They are powerless. They are at a loss. There's a siege against the city. People are getting increasingly more hungry. The supplies are running out, and they're about ready to be wiped out. And then King Jehoshaphat's like, what are we going to do? God sends a messenger and says, open his eyes, Lord. And he sees the armies of the living God surrounding their enemies, And what does King Jehoshaphat do? Not only is he encouraged in that moment, but we see that he leads the people of Israel in a worship service, basically. He leads them in a worship. And here's what you read in 2 Chronicles 20. The moment they begin to sing and give praise to God, all the enemies are routed and and and, uh, destroyed. And then for three days, Israel is just kind of reaping the plund, you know, plundering all the loot, basically, going for, for three days it took him to get all the supplies because of, guess what? What God did through the most unlikely means. Again, account after account, example after example, God's ways are not our ways. In fact, God often works in such a way that there is no conclusion to make after any great victory or deliverance or provision in our life except for this, God did this. There's no way we could have done this, but God did this. That's often how God works. We struggle with that as human beings because guess what? We want control. But God's like, no, I want there to be no other conclusion except for this. God did this. Let me share, you, share another example to emphasize the point of how God uses the most unlikely means to accomplish his purposes. It's actually an example that is mentioned in, the, in our passage here this morning, but it's easy to miss. In verse 4 of, our, of, of Isaiah chapter 9, we read this. Is it up there right now? There it is right there. In verse 4, it says, You will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. You see, what what Isaiah the prophet is alluding to is is God's incredible uh, deliverance and provision in the time of the judges through the judge Gideon. I'll give you a little background about kind of the, that period of life or period in the history of Israel. The, before there were kings, there were judges that God raised up to bring about deliverance for people. In the judges cycle, it's much like we are as human beings. You see, in the, when you look at the cycle of judges, in fact, the judges chapter one gives us kind of the, the life cycle of Israel. In God's blessing, when God blesses and gives favor, it's incredible. Everybody's like, this life is so good. What's, what's, there's nothing to fear. Everything is going the way we had hoped and wanted. And unfortunately, what happens because of our fallen human nature is in these kind of seasons of blessing and favor by God, guess what? We walk away from God, and that's exactly what Israel did 
constantly. They'd walk away. They'd begin to rebel. They'd adopt foreign gods, which are false gods. They would adopt all kinds of other customs that were actually immoral to God. It was just basically they would walk away from the Lord and do what's right in their own eyes. But God, because he is faithful and because he loves his people, says, I love you too much to let you do whatever you want to do. And so God Usually, what kind of got people's attention is he allowed foreign nations to oppress and to cause great struggle for his people Israel, and eventually his people Israel go, Lord, save us. Lord, do something. And then God, hearing their cry for help, would come in and raise up a judge. That judge would be his means by which he would bring about deliverance for his people, and then Israel would once again experience favor and, and, and really good times from the Lord. Lord, until they rebelled again and went all the way again. And that's what they did over and over and over and over again. And there's, it's possible some of us in here might actually think, come on, Israel, seriously, get it together. Why are you so thick-headed, right? When are you going to get it? As if we're any different, right? Are we any different? Let me ask you this. When things are going really well for you, are you more dependent or less dependent on God? Or let me ask you this way. When life is going the way you want it, are you more obedient or potentially less obedient to God? You see, oftentimes, our, 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 the weakness of our own flesh is this. When life is easy, when the, the pressure is off, we are less dependent and susceptible to going our own way. It's just what happens. It doesn't mean that everybody does at all times. It doesn't mean that because of God, that somehow God's favor is sabotaging us for uh, future blessing. That's not what it means. It just means our fickle nature, the, 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 the proneness to wander, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We sing that as an old hymn, right? It's like that's just who we are as human beings, and that's who Israel was. So here Israel finds himself under the oppression of these people called the Midianites. Now, the Midianites, and you can read this in Judges chapter 6. I'm just going to share the story with you. The Midianites were cruel and harsh to the people of Israel. Israel would be kind of living their lives, but the moment the crops were ready to be harvested, guess what? Midianites came in and took everything. The moment it was time for slaughter for animals, the Midianites would come in and take everything. Basically, Israel began building shelters in caves of the mountains just to escape the cruel harshness and oppression from the Midianites. Life was difficult. It was hard, and they were groaning outwardly, visibly, like, Lord, please do something. And God does do something. In Judges chapter 6, verse 12, God approaches and raises up this man called Gideon who would be the next deliverer of this people Israel. In Judges 6, 12, God says this to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Wow, Gideon must be a pretty impressive guy, right? Not so much. You see, Gideon, when he hears these words from the Lord, he, he is, he's probably equally surprised going, 
um, in verse 15, he says this. He's like, please, Lord, how can I save my people Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Translation, God, I think you got the wrong person here. Samson was really strong. He had a reputation. I'm kind of a nobody here. You get the wrong, I'm the least in in my own clan, and our clan is the least of all the clans. We basically, we're kind of nothing. No one expects anything to come from us. We have nothing to contribute towards the deliverance of your own people. And then God says this, but I will be with you. I will be with you. And long story short, Gideon, you know, you know the story. He sets out the fleece. I'm not really sure. Sets out the fleece. The fleece has got to be wet. The land, land, ground's got to be dry. Okay, it worked. Let's try the opposite. Okay, that worked. Okay, God is confirming over and over and over again. This is what He's doing. Okay, here we go. He musters up all the people. There's like ten thousand warriors ready to fight. It's not enough, but this is what we got. And God says, "Hey, it's too many. I'm sorry. Like too many." And long story short, God dwindles down the 10,000 warriors to 300. And you can wonder what those 300 are going, okay, this is it. This is my last stand. And the 300, they go, and they, I think they drew a sword, but they didn't use their sword. And yet God, because he works in sometimes unorthodox ways to us, He causes all kinds of confusion in the Midianite army, and they destroy themselves. And Gideon and his 300 men are just singing, celebrating, and worshiping. Midian destroys himself, and Israel is freed once again. What is the moral of that story, among many things? Moral is that God uses oftentimes the weak things of this world to shame the wise and the powerful of this world. God does some of his most profound works in the most unexpected ways. And this is what Isaiah, the prophet, is announcing to us 700 years before the prophecy would even be fulfilled. He's saying, and to this, a child is given to us, and he will be called Mighty God. Yes, coming initially in the form of a baby, but he will be called Mighty God. What does it mean to be mighty God? I'll break this down like I did last week as far as wonderful counselor. Mighty God, not that you have to remember this at all, but the Hebrew, because Isaiah is written in Hebrew, is El Gabor. Two words, El, which is the shortened version of Elohim, which is the name for God in the Old Testament, and Gabor, which means mighty, powerful, strong. What's interesting is when you put these words together, El Gabor, we think, oh, mighty God, there it is. It's a direct translation. But when it's interesting when you look at El, when El is used in its, in its shortened form, not that you have to remember all this, I'm just giving highlighting what is actually in the text that Isaiah writes for us. El in its shortened form, when it's uh, the shortened form of Elohim, which is God, actually means mighty one. El means mighty one. And so when you put El Gabor together, it is actually literally the mighty, mighty one of God. The mighty, mighty one of God. We're not just talking like, hey, this baby, he's pretty, pretty strong, got a lot of capability, got a future probably. No, no, no. He is the mighty, mighty one of God. This is God's only answer to our problem of sin and death. This is God putting his, not just his JV for it, it's his varsity. It's like, this is everything. 
all his eggs in one basket. The mighty, mighty one of God. The small, completely vulnerable, absolutely dependent, helpless little baby is the mighty, mighty one of God. And I think when you look at the life of Jesus, you know, you fast forward 30 years when his ministry began after he was born, Jesus proves that he is, in fact, the mighty, mighty one of God. We see that Jesus turns water into wine, that he feeds thousands of people with a sack lunch, that he heals the sick and the lame, that he raises the dead, that he casts out, he casts out demons, he calms the raging storms that almost killed his disciples. The point is this, this helpless baby that we celebrate every single year is the promised one through the prophet Isaiah saying that he is the mighty, mighty God. The one who will conquer the forces of evil. The one who will conquer the forces of death. The one who will take care of all that plagues us in this life. As God even asked Abraham in Genesis 18, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Jeremiah the prophet answers, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing. Given that context... I can't help but ask to make it very personal. What are the obstacles and what are the struggles that you are currently facing right now? I know for some of you, Christmas is not a celebratory time. We just met 150 families yesterday who Christmas can be a very difficult time financially relationally. What is your current struggle in life right now? What are the great forces that are working against you right now? For some of you, it could be an unemployment. Nothing like being unemployed when you could use a little extra cash, Right? Maybe for some of you, it's another sort of financial struggle. Maybe it's a relational strife. Maybe it's marital disappointment. Maybe it's a recent health diagnosis. Maybe it's just ongoing fear or discouragement. Maybe you've been struggling with depression and self-doubt. Temptation, a whole slew of bad habits. What is it for you? If it exists, what is your current crisis of faith? I believe there's a reason why God was eager to share some clues to the gift that He was going to give even 700 years before the gift was even given. Long before it would even arrive, he was eager to instill a mighty, mighty hope in the midst of great struggle and trial. And I believe that eagerness that God has to instill a mighty, mighty hope through a mighty, mighty Savior continues to this day. It wasn't limited to that point in time in history that God has continued to be eager to instill a mighty, mighty hope 
because he's a mighty, mighty Savior. I think Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, he shares this in his letter of encouragement to the persecuted church. Uh, he, he shares with us really a way to overcome whatever it is in the midst of our current struggle. Listen to what he, look at what he says in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Same word. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How are you and I invited to respond to God in the midst of our current crisis of faith? How are you and I encouraged to respond in the midst of our current struggle? Well, Peter kind of lays this out pretty clearly for us. He gives us two, he really tells us this is our part and this is God's part. Our part, according to what Peter writes, is this, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And he says, casting all your anxiety onto him. This understanding of casting our anxiety onto God isn't isn't just kind of a feeling that we're trying to muster up, but it is actually an actual invitation to respond. This casting is almost really verbal in context where when we're called to cast our anxiety, we're called to verbally say, God, this is too much. And this is what I'm talking about. And by the way, when you cast your anxiety and you tell God about your problems, you're not informing God of your problems. You're not informing him of your struggle. He already knows your struggle. We already learned this, that God is omniscient. He knows everything about you and everything he knows he cares about. And so you're not informing him. It's actually for your own benefit. Casting your anxiety verbally with God through prayer is for your benefit, not for his. Because in the process of prayer, if you don't understand it like this, then now you will. Prayer is an acknowledgement that you are powerless to change your situation and you need the, the intervention of someone else on your behalf. Prayer is an acknowledgement of like, I'm not God, but God, you are I'm not a mighty, mighty person, but you are a mighty, mighty God. Prayer is an acknowledgement or really just admitting that I can't, but he can. So what is God's promise to us? We're called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to cast our anxiety onto him, Verbally acknowledging, oh God, I am in a real pickle here. I can't do this. I don't know what to do. It's much like King Jehoshaphat. I'm fearful, I'm discouraged, and I'm clueless as to know, to know what to do. And then this is what God promises. This is what, how he says he will respond. He says, he will exalt you at the right time. Meaning he will lift you up in honor at the right time. He will lift you up out of your struggle and place you on solid ground. This this understanding of the right time is really a time known to God, but rarely known to us. You see, the right time for us is right now. 
when I prayed it, right? I prayed, so God, chop, chop, lollipop, let's go, right? <laughs> let's go, God. Come on, get it together. I'm ready. This is uncomfortable. We don't like uncomfortable. We don't like our discomfort. We like our comfort. It's an idol, potentially. Not all comfort's an idol. It can easily become one. And so when we pray because of our discomfort and we realize that we are powerless in our discomfort, we want God to act. And here's his promise to us. He will at the right time. What is the right time? The right time is often when the growth that God intends to accomplish is complete in us. What does James tell us? You know a verse. Sometimes we read this verse and we don't like this verse even though it's biblical. Because the implications of this verse means, ah, I'm growing and God is stretching and he's refining me and it's really hurt sometimes. But James says, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What James is reminding us is like, hey, we can count it all joy when we endure or face trials and struggles of various kinds because God is doing a supernatural. He's doing a divine work in our lives through that. He doesn't waste anything. He uses every circumstance, every struggle for our good and for his glory. That's what God promises. So at the right time, Peter reminds us that God will exalt us. And secondly, that he will care for you. The word for care means that God will provide everything you need to endure your struggle faithfully. If you need health, if you need welfare, maintenance, protection, finances, whatever it is, God says, I will provide in my way. Not your way, but my way. Why? How? What's the ultimate conclusion? much like we see in all of Scripture, that we make no other conclusion but this. God did this. I couldn't have done this. I can't save me. I can't deliver me. I can't fix this. But God can. And that's how God gets the glory. Mm-hmm. 